You're listening to Denver Orbit. Special episode. The Great Pretender Rerun. Welcome to Denver Orbit. Denver Orbit is an audio magazine where we feature voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm your host, Josh Madison. And normally, you'd hear Ryan's voice here, but he's embarked on his great adventure. Or, you know what, maybe he's just sitting around somewhere eating Doritos in his underwear. Regardless of which it is, the show must go on. Now, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to mention a couple of things. We are actively seeking submissions for the show, and that really could be anything. Maybe you've got a story to tell, or a song you recorded in your basement, or maybe you've got a comedy bit or a poem. Even if you've got an idea that you just kind of wanted to talk it out, we'd love to hear it. So drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com. And you can also reach us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Denver Orbit on both. Also, and I hate to be a tease, but we've got a couple of big announcements to make. A couple of big surprises in store coming up, but you're going to have to wait until next week to hear them because today's story is a bit of a rerun. Now, you might be saying to yourself, this isn't the Rockford Files. They haven't been on long enough to have a rerun, and you'd be right to say that. But a few things have happened or didn't happen, and, well, here we are. So, back in episodes four and five, friend of the show Mike Flaherty told us a story. And I broke that story into two pieces and two episodes because I wanted to stick with the format of the show. But I've always felt this story is just better told as one piece. I think it just flows better that way. I'm also really proud of the work that Ryan and Mike did on this one. So, I hope you'll listen to the story the way it was intended, and we'll have a fresh episode out for you next week. So, without further ado then... Here's Mike Flaherty and Ryan Connell, and occasionally me. I had just joined up with a group called Iraq Veterans Against the War, and that's how I got to know Rick. This is part one of a story about my best friend, Mike. Well, I guess I'm in it a little bit, too. This is a story about a roommate that we once had. He was one of the first people that kind of came up and greeted me. I had known another member of that group. They were organizing an action in Colorado Springs to put on a demonstration, of course, about wanting to bring an end to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was one of the first ones to introduce himself to me. Very friendly. And you could tell like he was very open about his homosexuality. He would make a lot of jokes along those lines. I was like, okay, all right, this guy is full steam ahead on that, not burying the lead. So, all right, seems like a friendly enough sort. So I got to meet all those guys and more and more as we were like planning actions and especially leading up to the elections in 2008, 
Uh, we, we all, that group, spent a lot of time together, and Rick was a part of that. Wait, so they're both vets? Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I went a little radio lab on you, didn't I? Um, here, let's have Mike just introduce himself. My name is Mike Flaherty. I'm a U.S. Army veteran, and I served two tours in Iraq, both uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 and 3. So I deployed in 2003 and 2005 out of Fort Carson, Colorado. So yes, both vets. And as you heard, both were very involved in an organization called Iraq Veterans Against the War, or IVAW. It's a national protest organization that was started in 2004. That's where the two of them met. So I always liked Rick because he was charismatic, right? He was he was um, always cracking a good joke, always just a little little on that fringe, you know, of, is this guy crazy or is he just a fun-loving ADHD sort of person? Now, it should be noted here that a lot of the guys in IVAW had some pretty severe PTSD. Some had just gotten home and were barely starting to process what they had been through. A few of them were drinking pretty heavily to cope. So the fact that Rick seemed a little off sometimes was hardly a big deal. Most of the guys that hung out at our place seemed that way a lot. So it's just to kind of paint a picture of the house, but we, the the kinds of friends that I would bring over, of course, were mostly these this group um, of veterans, right? And they'd get a little wild. We'd sit out on the patio, drink a lot of beers, and just sort of hang out together, you know? Okay, he's making it sound folksy. This was a, a party house. It had some crazy nights. There was furniture smashed, cops called. I would tell stories, but I know my mom is listening. Hey, mom. We had an original three roommates. One roommate left. I gave a favor to a, a friend, another friend, who had came, stayed with us. Whenever that month was up and he didn't have any money to offer up, he just skipped town. Cue Rick. Rick Duncan was a guy with an incredible story. After graduating at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, he quickly became a captain in the Marines. He was stationed at the Pentagon on 9-11, and during his third tour of Iraq, Rick encountered an IED. Three of the five people in the vehicle with him died. Rick was severely injured. His story was that he had suffered um, some severe head trauma and that his um, convoy was hit by an IED. And that's how he um, suffered his injuries. My third tour in Iraq, I call it my two, two and a half tours because I only made it about halfway through. I was involved in an IED explosion that killed four Marines. That he was, you know, severely concussed and even had like a scar along like one side of his head. I have a plate roughly the size of a, uh, like a cup and saucer on this portion of my skull right here. I've got, got a scar that runs back here and then down here. In addition, Rick had two fake knees, a replacement hip, brain damage, nerve damage on the right-hand side of his body, and a good deal of internal shrapnel. He was awarded the Purple Heart, which is given out for being injured in combat, and perhaps more impressively, the Silver Star, which is the US military's third highest personal decoration for valor in combat. And I know this is not more impressive, but it's still kind of impressive to me that Rick was set to be on This American Life. It was the first thing I ever heard about him, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world at the time. He would tell the story, you know, pretty frequently. Whenever we would have our demonstrations or rallies or whatnot, Rick was very charismatic, and he would always 
sort of be like a spokesperson. He would tell this story and he would, you know, he would amazingly like really connect with with veterans who had similar stories and that they would tell him their stories. And so Rick would start gathering up all these stories of other veterans. And he put those stories to good use. He helped produce something called the Warrior Writers Open Mic Night, where vets would do spoken word pieces about their experiences. He also founded an organization called the Colorado Veterans Alliance to help veterans in need. Now, he was very outspoken about the effects of, of war on himself. None of the other guys really in the group were quite that way. Every now and then you could have a little heart to heart between each other, but nobody like really just had this sort of over the top um, way of talking about trauma or the effects of war. And the majority of the group, we just didn't talk too much, if at all, about deployments or anything we did because we were there as support to take our minds off of it, to think about something else. And not only that, but to try to help raise like a little bit more awareness because at that time, even in 2007, they hadn't even come out with that information that we know now, right? Which is that there was, there were no weapons of mass destruction that like we can, we know a lot of like the things that were happening behind the scenes that led to the war in Iraq and how the war in Afghanistan was being handled. Things like that weren't in the light. And we were wanting to be a group that did kind of shed light on those types of issues. Rick took to the spotlight a little more than most. He was working for Senator Udall's office and he sort of became like a poster child for veterans issues in Colorado. And like he was on commercials for Senator Udall. Actually, the commercial he was in was for Hal Bidlack, who was running for Congress at the time. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Bidlack. He's a 25-year veteran. A national security advisor. And a nuclear missile launch officer. He'll stand up. For vets like us. Every single person that we knew just accepted him. This is our friend, Rick. Um, Marine captain, veteran. Every every now and then at our rallies, people would kind of come up and we just asked them some of the sort of basic questions about what unit were you in or, you know, and then who were you attached to another unit or whatever. And you start kind of hearing from people and you kind of think, okay, this guy's just, this guy's probably not telling the truth. We would do that as veterans and Rick would participate in those types of conversations from time to time. When he moved in with us, I would be watching television or something late at night in the living room and Rick was sleeping on our couch. We had two. He'd sleep on one, I'd sit on another one and watch television. It didn't seem to bother him. As he would lay there sleeping, he would start going through these little fits of like freaking out a little bit or, or acting like very terrified, you know, or presenting very terrified, like as if he's having a very bad dream. And he'd kind of wake up and... <gasps> catch his breath and kind of look around and like eyes wide just kind of looking at me and then finally like narrowing his his vision and just kind of calming himself down and he's talking about oh yeah man you know like i just have these night terrors it's you know so sorry if i do that or if it's if it's disrupting you at all or anything i'm like no don't worry about it man you're you're fine but after a few weeks things started to seem a little strange the night terrors threw me off or or, or raised skepticism in me because it just seemed too dramatic and now I had never been someone who has witnessed someone having actual night terrors so I I just doubted the legitimacy of it just because of the times that it occurred it seemed like it was mostly occurring when I was around it's not like I ever heard him having these fits when I was in my bedroom or 
or if he was actually asleep and I was kind of waking up and moving around, I wouldn't see it then. I would really only see it. I felt like when he knew I was around, like when he knew he had an audience. It, it started as a, as, a, as a small suspicion, and it's a suspicion that you don't want to have about one of your veteran friends. You don't want to be sitting here. Think, we never, we don't challenge each other. Some of us were very honest. I myself was in a very much a support role during my deployments, and I have one of my other friends who was a sniper, or these guys were cavalry scouts. And so like these guys definitely were dealing with a lot more tense situations than I ever did. But we always talked about how no one has a monopoly on trauma or how war affects you. It was always sort of this thing to say, you're in this community of veterans. You served over there in these wars. You're one of us. We don't care if you didn't take a life. We don't care if you didn't get shot at. We don't care if you never set foot off of a base or anything like that. It doesn't matter. You were over there. And if you feel at all used or betrayed by the government, like for me, I was very upset about the fact that I feel like the premise for the war in Iraq was just a straight up lie that I bought into and I felt betrayed because of it. And a lot of us sort of had that like a little bit of resentment and anger. So that was another sort of thing that unified us where you did not have to have super like combat or tense experiences. Once my skepticism had begun, I remember going up to Cripple Creek with another IVAW and veteran friend of mine. Um, and I just kind of remember talking to him a little bit about Rick and talking about these night terrors that I was seeing. Um, and even more, like other things that I can't quite recall now, but there, were, there was a little bit more that was making me skeptical of him. And I just remember that I turned to my friend and I said, you know, I think that I think that Rick's full of shit. I was like, I don't even know if I think he's a veteran. If he ever deployed, if he was ever in the military, I don't like, I just, I just feel like his story is not real. Or like, I feel like he's, he's elaborating or acting or embellishing greatly. And so that was, that was, that was the extent of it. Some months later, a group of veterans got together and formed this nonprofit group called Veterans Green Jobs. And this sort of took me um, away from this house that where we were living. Veterans Green Jobs started by having two months down in Alamosa. And it was during this time where we were all in Alamosa and doing our um, weatherization training, learning how to do home energy audits, things like this. When the news broke that Rick Duncan was indeed a fraud. And I looked over at my friend that I had gone to Cripple Creek with, and I was just like, I fucking told you so. He said he was a war vet injured on the battlefield in Iraq, and he used his story to inspire people and rally them to his cause, and it worked. The problem was none of it was true. He wasn't who he claimed to be. Why did he do this? Let's try to find out. Rick joins us now for an exclusive 360 interview. Rick, thanks for being with us. For, for the record, I, I just want to get a couple things clear. You had said you served two and a half tours in Iraq with the Marines. In fact, you were never a Marine. You were never in Iraq, correct? This is correct, Anderson. And you claimed you had gone to Annapolis, to the Naval Academy. You did not go to Annapolis, correct? That is correct, Anderson. And you claimed you were at the Pentagon on 9-11. You told a very dramatic story about being in the Pentagon on 9-11. You were never there. That is correct as well. This is the real story of Rick. 
Richard Glenn Strandloff was born in Montana in 1977. He claims he was raised in an abusive, dysfunctional home until he was permanently estranged from his mother when he came out at 14. In high school, he started going by the name Rick Pearson and was heavily involved in the drama club. In 1997, he was arrested under the name Rick Pearson and was sentenced to five years for forgery and bad check charges. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. While in prison, Rick acted as his own attorney and sued the Correctional Facilities Food Services for $10 million due to them serving him saccharin, a known carcinogen in his fruit drink. He would also sue the Correctional Facilities Administrators claiming that their ban on hardcore pornography violated his civil rights. He was later banned from the prison computers because he was caught posing as a lawyer. In 2005, Rick Strandloff was living near Lake Tahoe where he posed as a race car promoter and raised nearly $25,000 for a race that would never occur. After serving nine months in jail for not returning a rented car, Rick followed his boyfriend to Colorado and soon after became Captain Rick Duncan, wounded Marine veteran. He had done more than just lie about being a veteran. He had started a an organization to raise money he was doing fundraising for for veterans and somewhere along the line somebody thought to vet him okay one good unintentional pun there and two here's how rick got caught in april of 2009 rick called the fort carson army base and said that he was working for senator mark udall and wanted to set up a meeting at the base but when the Fort Carson liaison called Senator Udall's office to verify, they discovered there was no Rick Duncan employed there. Udall's office then called the board of the Colorado Veterans Alliance, that's the organization that Rick founded, and they began to investigate. Within hours, his whole story unraveled. So once that news was out, we were just like, wow. Then you kind of start, then it's a bad thing because you're thinking, oh man, anyone else could be a liar not necessarily true you see for iraq veterans against the war one of the very first things that i was asked to do was basically like enroll and provide documentation of my service and become like a legit member of the organization gone through with the chapter president in colorado springs and i went through that process and since i went through that process i assumed that every person there anyone else in that organization had gone through the same process. Do you know how Rick got in? He never went through. He just always avoided he never, it. He never joined. Right? He never joined the organization. He, he was never up. an official member. Rick told everyone at the time that he didn't want to officially join because he wanted to work under the radar so he can maintain relationships with conservative politicians and veterans. So yeah, come to find out his name was Rick Strandloff and he had had some institutionalization or he was institutionalized at, at, at some point in his past and then he had, he had gotten out and not that he had escaped or anything but you know he's not an escaped mental, mental patient but he had he had gotten out of whatever program he was there for rehabilitation or whatnot but this was sort of his mo he likes to create these little personalities or personas and push it and see how far he can take it when i found out I actually had a sense of pride that like, aha, I was correct. I had deduced that this man was lying and no one believed me. 
but I didn't really try to hard sell it. It was a pretty private uh, yeah, declaration. Yeah, I was about to ask, like, did, did you really, like, outside of telling, telling one of your friends that he was full of shit, did you try to convince anyone else that? Absolutely not. I wasn't. you just had that suspicion. Yeah, I did. Um, and so, like, for me, I just felt, I felt validated. And then from there, like, again, like, everybody was kind of, as I mentioned, the feeling with some people was, huh, well, he's a fraud. And what does this mean? There were some in the group that were just angered and like, you know, I hate that piece of shit because stolen valor is something that is a very serious issue in the, in the community. And especially those had like had, had served and, and had actually been in IED attacks who had actually seen friends die, who had actually been under fire, who had actually taken lives. Those people I think felt the most betrayed because it was as if like, what they've gone through was somehow cheapened because this person was able to just lie about it and get away with it. This person was able to be out in, the, in a public display of courage and valor and isn't he a remarkable man and he survived this and isn't it great what he's doing for these veterans. So I need to break into this narrative a little bit to talk about the Stolen Valor Act. According to federal law, it's illegal to wear a military medal that you did not earn as your own. The Stolen Valor Act, which was signed into law in 2006, expanded on this, making it illegal to even claim to have earned such a commendation. Rick claimed to have been awarded both the Purple Heart and the Silver Star, so as a result, he was brought under federal charges for violation of the Stolen Valor. However, the law was always controversial, with many arguing that freedom of speech entailed the freedom to lie. After all, people lie about stuff all the time. Is it fair that telling women you are some rich celebrity just gets you an eye roll, but telling that same woman that your unit is shipping off to war tomorrow can get you a jail sentence? When the Stolen Valor Act was eventually argued in the Supreme Court, Rick's was one of the cases discussed, and they overturned the law. Rick was allowed to go free. Kelsey Whipple from Westward did some great reporting about this in her piece, Will the Real Rick Strandloff Please Stand Up? We'll have a link to it in the show description on our website. Nothing that Rick did during his time posing as a Marine Corps captain was bad or negative toward anybody. He was never malintended. In fact, what he what he actually did was a lot of he actually did a lot of good. There were plenty of people that he sent to the VA to go get like help to have to to tell them that they need somebody to talk to or that they could talk to him. And he would be that shoulder for, for a veteran to cry on, whether with literal tears or figurative. Um, you asked what, what my feelings were about everything. And I'll tell you that one night I was walking with a friend in, in Cap Hill, Denver, and uh, headed to watch an NFL game. And I saw him. I saw him standing with the protesters. I think it was for Occupy Denver. It was like during the Occupy Wall Street initial movement, right? I saw him and I didn't talk to him. I didn't want to say anything to him, but I just remember thinking to myself like, man, I'd like to, I wish I could just pop that guy in the face. And I'm like, that's a really weird thought because I'm a pretty nonviolent person and I don't have those kinds of thoughts. But I was at least in that moment, a little bit outraged. And I don't think that I was owning my own rage or anger but I think that it was like a collective of like you know being around people who had said enough things about him so we would mock him we would watch that Anderson Cooper video and just be sitting there laughing while we're you know having knocking back some cold ones 
So I think that I just kind of picked up on some of that and, and it just sort of kind of came out through me and I thought of, had that thought. I think that's why I couldn't really stay mad because that there's a certain part of me that just felt pity. Like that I felt bad for him because he couldn't, he can't stop this cycle. Like for him, it's always going to be repeating and he's never going to be able to just accept himself as himself. Even after all of this, getting caught impersonating a soldier, being arrested for that crime, and having that case argued at the Supreme Court, and winning that case, Rick Strandloff's need for, well, I mean, it's hard to describe what, actually, impersonation, duplicity, deception, whatever it is, it didn't end there. In 2011, Rick was caught going by the name Rick Gold, an Israeli-born civil rights attorney and Krav Maga trainer. Not only was he deeply involved in the Denver Jewish community, he also helped start Denver Flash Mob and put on over a dozen big events, all apparently while homeless. Now, I'm not a mental health professional in any way, so this is just pure speculation, but something about his behavior feels compulsive. Like he wouldn't be able to stop even if he wanted to. As of this podcast, Rick seems to be going by a different name. I saw him last summer as I was driving for Lyft and I gave him and his boyfriend at the time, I don't know that they were dating, but they were together and headed, headed downtown. So he was the passenger and we exchanged some banter, but I never got the impression that he knew that I was me and that I knew that he was or wasn't he. I just felt like I had to say something. And so as he was getting out of the car and walking away, I just say out the window and it was not hit. He did not request the lift. So the thing that showed up on my screen was the other guy, whatever his name was. So there's no way I would know his name. Like Rick would have no reason to think that I would know his name, but I call out the window and I say, Rick. And he kind of turns back to look at me and I say, I forgive you. I'm not sure why I said it if I've really felt that he had transgressed me or maybe that by seeing my name in all these articles that, that I may have been on record as saying that how I had resented him or that I didn't, I didn't like him or I was angry or whatever. It just felt like the thing to say at that time, just to make sure that now he knows if he never knew now he knows. And even if he didn't have any need for that clarity, perhaps I did. So I wanted to touch on something Mike said a little bit earlier here. Nothing that Rick did during his time as imposing as a Marine Corps captain, veteran, was bad or negative um, toward anybody. He was never malintended. In fact, what he, what he actually did was a lot of, he actually did a lot of good. I'm not so sure that's true. How so? Well, somebody like Rick is so mercurial in their personality and their motives that it's hard to tell what they were trying to accomplish at all. His explanation is that he just gets caught up in the stories he tells, which implies that he isn't aware of when he's lying or not. And I definitely don't buy that at all. Um, first of all, the nonprofit he founded was under the name Rick Strandloff. If he really believed he was Rick Duncan, he probably would have used that name. But also, hearing stories from the people that knew him he clearly studied the part well. 
He worked out to look like a Marine. He learned the jargon and military in-jokes. He even borrowed bits and pieces of other people's stories that he would pawn off as his own. I think he fully knew that he was lying. But, as Mike said, he did do a lot of good. He fought for the rights of homeless veterans. He convinced several people to get counseling and treatment for their PTSD. He raised awareness about what was actually happening in the war. So really, the question is, how much does that matter? Is all the good that he accomplished, all the people that he consoled, is that outweighed by his deceit? Well, even his altruism demands some scrutiny. In the Colorado Public Radio interview, he took credit for starting an open mic night that was actually started by somebody else. And he raised a lot of money for care packages for vets, and no one really knows what happened to that money. There's a ripple effect to all of his very public behavior, which is kind of negative. And I fully agree with that, and I don't want to gloss over that or excuse what he's done. But it is good to remember that we are talking about a guy with some real mental health issues. He was not in a place where he was thinking rationally, even if he knew he was lying. But there is still a ripple effect to all the good that he did, too. Even Mike has said that he would never have sought treatment for his depression had Rick not encouraged him to do so. And because Mike's my friend, if nothing else, I owe Rick a debt of gratitude for that. And that's it for this week. The story The Great Pretender was told by Mike Flaherty with additional writing and research by Ryan Connell. It was produced and edited by me. Ryan is the former co-host of the show and a writer. He is currently traveling the country searching. You can read about that at his website, theholyapostate.com. And Mike Flaherty is a photographer, and you can see his work on Instagram at Shifting Passions and on the World Wide Web at 13zphotography.wordpress.com. And finally, there's something else I wanted to mention. Denver Orbit is searching for a new co-host. Do you have a passion for good radio and a good sense of humor? Are you a decent writer and have friends in the arts? All of this experience isn't entirely necessary as long as you want to help make good stories come to life. So if this sounds like you, drop me a line at denverorbit at gmail.com and we can chat about it and see if you're a good fit. Also, just up front, there's no money. Yet. Next week, we will have a brand new episode out, along with some big news, which I can't wait to tell you about, but I have to. So, until then, Denver Orbit is written, produced, and edited by me, Josh Madison. And I'll see you again in one week. (laughs) ¶¶